Thank you, Andrea, just for that uh, reminder of the sufficiency of Christ as our shepherd who provides for all our needs and delivers, 
delivers us from a false dependence on all of those things we think we need. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to be um, expositing the first 23 verses of this chapter. Um, so I'll just give you a moment to turn there. We'll read it together, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on its proclamation and on our receiving it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted above your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of, partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sac when pagan pardon me, what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Lord, again, we come to you uh, much in need of your help to receive your word that was first delivered by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians and to understand how it relates to us now. Lord, we know that your scripture, your word from cover to cover reveals the idolatry of man and our tendency to worship and to strive for things other than the one who created us. And Lord, you have laid out the consequences very clearly for this. And we are, though we don't worship idols, we don't carve calves and, and worship them, 
We recognize that idolatry and all of its associations are a daily struggle for us. So we ask, Lord, that this portion of Scripture, which was written for the encouragement of the Corinthians, would encourage us today and exhort us to flee from idolatry and to flee from the temptation and to take the way of escape which you provide. We ask now for ears to hear. I ask for humility and clarity in proclaiming your word. I think of Moses as he was called to preach. He made an excuse and he said, I am not eloquent, neither have I ever been eloquent. And Lord, I echo Moses' prayer, but I receive from you the truth that that you made my mouth and Lord, you've given me this responsibility and I ask for your help to proclaim it clearly. So we ask for all these things and we thank you so much for speaking to us in your word. I pray again that we would hear it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in the middle of a section here and Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, First, he begins by addressing some complaints he's heard about them, that there are divisions and so on. Then he goes to address specific questions that they have uh, addressed to him in a letter. And one of the questions is, should we eat meat offered to idols? So chapters 8, 9, and 10 all revolve around this central question. Chapter 8, it showed us that We need to avoid being puffed up in our pride if we think that uh, even though we have no conscientious problem with eating food offered to idols, someone else might, and we need to be very careful that we don't cause them to stumble. In chapter 9, we saw how Paul surrenders his rights um, and encourages the Corinthians to do the same, to surrender his, his right, for example, even to take along a believing wife when he ministers or to demand a paycheck for bringing the word to them. For the sake of the gospel, he lays down those things and he concludes by saying that he, uh, he treats his body as an athlete treats his body, willing to deprive it of things and willing to treat it harshly if that is what it takes to further the gospel. So now we come again to, he circles around and gets back to the direct issue of idolatry and specifically of food offered to idols. Now there are two types of people in Corinth. Corinth, there are those who have knowledge, those who uh, understand and that from Scripture that idols are nothing and and that there is no um, necessarily not anything wrong with eating that food. It's just food. But the weight of the argument is that we need to respect those who do have a problem with. Um, the pagan associations and the idolatrous associations. Now, when we get into this, this chapter, we're going to see that these associations, they're not just empty. There are actual rulers of wickedness in the heavenly realms that exert their, uh, their control over human beings, especially when people willingly worship them. And this is what's happening in Corinth, which was a a very idolatrous city. But what we're going to look at today is that even though there is liberty, and that the food in itself is just food, there is a danger of sliding into temptation, even for those who think that they are strong. 
There are people probably in that congregation who think that they could go and sit, in, sit down in an idol's temple and eat food offered to idols. In fact, obviously it's already happening because Paul warns if, if someone who is, uh, has a weak conscience sees you going in there and eating, they're going to be tempted to do that themselves and they're going to sin and you're going to sin against your brother and you're going to sin against Christ. So it's a very serious thing. Um, so what Paul is saying in this section that we've just read is that even the people who think that they are strong in such a, an area, they need to be careful as well because when you participate <clears throat> and when you surround yourself with the rituals and the, the associations of paganism, and the more, the more you enter into that, the more that you yourself are in danger of falling into idolatry. So even though there's freedom, there's extreme caution issued here. So let's uh, begin with our message. I've entitled the message, Take Heed Lest You Fall. And uh, we're just uh, going to go through five different sections of the text here. First, we're going to look at some blessings, the blessings of Israel, how Israel as a nation and as a people had some unique privileges laid out for them by God. And of all the people in the world, they were most privileged to have those things. But in spite of all of those things, God makes them an example because despite the knowledge that they had, this, despite the security that they had, they did a lot of things wrong. And in this chapter, in this passage, Paul lays out the things they did that were wrong, that were sinful, all which focus on idolatry. And it says to us and to everyone else who reads this, don't be like them. So it's really a bad example that Israel is setting. Then we'll look at the universality of temptation. You see, those temptations came upon the Jews, upon, pardon me, upon the Israelites in the desert, um, but they are not limited to them. They are common to man. And when those temptations are there, we need to recognize that every one of us is affected with those same things. Even on us to whom the ends of the world have come. In other words, this isn't just a 4,000-year-old problem. This is a current problem right up until Jesus comes. The problem of idolatry. Anyone can be sucked into this, so let's be careful that we don't come, become complacent or we'll fall. Uh, then we'll look at the faithfulness of God. He doesn't leave us stuck in the, those temptations. He provides a way of escape. And Paul exhorts us here to flee from idolatry. When we see the escape hatch, we don't say, oh, nice escape hatch. We actually run for it. We get out of there. We, we, uh, we make as far distance upon ourselves and idolatry as we can possibly make. And then we are going to uh, conclude here with the danger of idolatry. And Paul will expose what idolatry actually is and why it is such a very serious thing and why it is not something to trifle with. So that is uh, the message in a nutshell, or in a, or a bird's eye view, I guess, and now we'll just we'll zoom in to the details. First, let's look at the blessings, the blessings that Israel enjoys as a people. Let's start at verse 1. For I want you, do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Now, 
let me just explain what's, who Paul is addressing here because I think it's very important. He is addressing the church in Corinth. Most of them would be Gentiles. There would be a few who were first proselytes to Judaism and then eventually became believers in Christ. There, were, there would be some who uh, were Jews to start with, and when they believed in Christ, they remained Jews, but they, they became Christians. So it's a mixed group, but there are some who would be ignorant about some of the, um, the history of Israel. So when Paul is speaking in verses 1 to 3, he is speaking, when he says, our fathers, he's speaking as a Jew. And so he's speaking from his own vantage point to this mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, hoping that the Gentiles will understand some of the background that they need for him to go on with the rest of his, his uh, treatment of this topic. So he says, For I do not want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers, that is the fathers of Israel, were all under the cloud, and the cloud being the, the glory cloud that sheltered them from the, the heat during the day, and that it was a pillar of fire by night, and that cloud that uh, followed them while they went through the desert. So they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. That is the Red Sea, uh, a great type of deliverance. Um, and here it's, it's, it's even shown as a type of baptism, but how they, God made a path through them. They stood still. They saw the salvation of the Lord, and they were all able, able to go through the sea, and they came out the other end alive, and then Egypt, the Egyptians who were following them and pursuing them, were swallowed up in the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what this means is that this was, um, they were identified with Moses. They followed Moses, the cloud went with Moses, and they were with him under that cloud. Moses went through the sea, they went with him through the sea. When we are baptized into Christ, the significance of that is that we identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We go under the water, symbolizing death, and, and then and burial. We come up, symbolizing resurrection and new life. We are, if, we're, if we die with him, we will also be raised with him. Well, this identification with Moses, it is showing that they are God's peculiar, God's special people. Moses, of course, is... Uh, clearly the, the, the mediator of the law in the Old Testament, and he is the one who kind of solidifies God's people under the law of God. And it says they all ate the same spiritual food. Well, you'll recall that they ate manna as they went through the desert, and manna, they just said, what is it? That's really what it meant. Manna, what is it? Uh, but that food was... Uh, enough it was nutritionally sufficient to sustain them in the desert but uh, of course we know that the manna itself was not spiritual food jesus identifies himself in the gospel of john as the fulfillment as the true bread from heaven the bread that uh, that gives eternal life and satisfies for all eternity but it was a a picture or a foreshadow of Christ, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, that's an odd image. They drank from a rock that followed them. And we, we, uh, 
we lack the biblical explanation of this, but there's a rabbinical explanation. And Paul was a Pharisee, and he was um, schooled in some of the traditions of the background of some of these passages. And the, uh, the rabbis believed that wherever they went, somehow, supernaturally, that rock that where the water came out and that gave them water, that that rock was always there. Uh, Paul doesn't say that was true, but he's sort of playing on an understanding that people would have. But what his point, his point is saying, the, the water from the rock, it is emblematic of Christ. Christ is the living water. Christ is the source of living water. Um, and Jesus, of course, verifies that when he says, uh, he, who believe, or, he who believes in me out of his inmost, inmost being will flow li- rivers of living water. He also says, whoever drinks this living water will never be thirsty again. Speaking of um, the Holy Spirit that he would ask the Father and, and would be given to the people. So these are all unique blessings of Israel. Uh, in the book of Romans, Paul expresses this another way. He says, what advantage, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And he says, much in every way, but most of all, that they are entrusted with the oracles of God or the word of God. So I think what Paul is doing here, he's saying Israel had every advantage. They had the security of the cloud over them. They had the, the sufficiency of the water that never ran out. They had the, uh, the spiritual food from heaven that was given to them. They had all of this. Even with all of this, they were not immune to idolatry and they were not immune to temptation. And because Christ is brought into this picture, of course, they didn't know the rock was Christ. We do. And we know Christ. We know him far more intimately than, than the Jews ever could have, than Israel ever could have. But we, too, uh, we need to pay attention to what he says next. So we've seen the blessings of Israel. Now let's look at the example of Israel. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. With most of them. There's only a remnant of Israel that will ultimately be saved. There's a a great winnowing that takes place. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Of course, this took 40 years. And by the time they entered into Canaan, a whole generation had to die in the desert. And it was only those, I think, 20 and under, Joshua and Caleb's age anyway, only they were allowed to enter. Um, So they were overthrown in the wilderness. And it was only those who uh, either truly believed or were not directly culpable in their initial hesitance to go into the land in faith. Remember, only Joshua and Caleb of the 12 spies said, we can go in, the Lord has given us the land. Everyone else rejected, or everyone else trembled in fear, and they did not trust the Lord to bring them in. And that was the essence of the downfall of a whole generation. So, now these things took place as examples to us. 
Remember in our last passage, Paul quoted an obscure passage and he said, you shall not muzzle an ox that treads the grain. Paul said, do you think God wrote that for oxen? No, he wrote that for us. (laughs) Paul really sees the importance of all of Scripture to the current generation and to the church. And he's saying these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This is uh, significant because it certainly implies that it is possible for us, as believers in Christ, to desire evil, to desire things that would uh, bring jealousy to God, or that would make God jealous, uh, that would cause His wrath to be revealed against us, or at least His discipline. Uh, And I think there's something that could be helpful to us here. If we think of Israel as a nation, and if we think of ourselves, we... Israel received the, the, uh, the word of God as a nation and they were held accountable to, to God. If we think of ourselves as that nation, we know that ultimately Israel did enter into the promised land. Ultimately, Israel was not destroyed by the hand of God, but those who, were not, who did not believe were destroyed. I think God has a way of working on us as individuals and purging out the unbelief, purging out the sin, disciplining us. And in the end, even when it comes to reward, it's only those things that, uh, that are for eternity that will survive. The wood, the hay, the stubble, they're going to burn out, burn up. So if a, a person is truly a believer, I do not believe and I do not see in here that it is talking about loss of salvation. However, I do believe it is talking about the discipline of God on us as individuals, purging out and dealing with sin within us so that we enter, having been preserved by God almost many times as though by fire, uh, I think that's really what is in view here. And also, we can look at this corporately. Uh, we are, there's 40, 40 people here. Uh, some of us are too young to understand the gospel. Some of us have been in the gospel for many years. And I don't, I don't uh, know everyone's heart. I am reasonably sure that I know most of you. But... Normally, when a pastor stands in front of his congregation, he has to understand that there are some who are in Canaan. They've entered the promised land, but they don't believe. And God will deal with them. That there are wheat, uh, weeds among the wheat. There are unclean fish in the net with the clean fish. In other words, there's going to be a sorting out. And so... Don't take it for granted that you're sitting in a church where the gospel is preached and where you read the, where people read the scriptures, where there seems to be a sense of God's blessing, where you even sit and receive communion. Ultimately, it comes down to your heart. Ultimately, it comes down to are you receiving and repenting and um, enduring the discipline of the Lord or if you're, if you're just kind of coasting through and that discipline runs off your back and you don't even care, you probably need to ask, 
Am I really in the faith? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And if you think you're immune from that discipline or, or you're exempt, um, we need to do some soul searching. Anyway, let's uh, get back to this. You're overthrown in the desert. These take, things took place as example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now we read the, a good part of that chapter in Exodus 32 um, in the beginning of the service. When they rose up to play, okay, the context of course is that Moses had gone up on the mountain to get the commandments from the Lord. The people got impatient and they decided or they thought, well, Moses, is he even coming back? We don't know what's happened to him. Let's make gods for ourselves and worship them. Let's, let's uh, give thanks to God for bringing up us up of, out of Egypt. But they had to have an image. They were culturally accustomed to that, having been 400 years in Egypt. This is how the Egyptians worshipped. So they got all their jewelry. Aaron made a calf and... You, you know the story. Now when they rose, ate and drank and rose up to play, it means that they got up, they got up not only to worship and to uh, sacrifice to their false god, this golden calf, but they committed all manner of, of uh, debauchery and fornication and sexual immorality. Um, they completely blasphemed the name of the Lord. They made a huge ruckus there in the middle of the desert, and it was uh, a very demonic, very idolatrous scene. So, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Recognize that even though you've come through the sea, you're still susceptible to this temptation. It says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That was when the prophet Balaam, um, it gave, gave the hint to, I think it was the king of Moab, that just uh, tempt the Israelites sexually, send in prostitutes, and you'll get the upper hand. And of course, Israel fell right into it, and there were, as it says, 23,000 that died in one day. I should mention, that in the passage in Exodus, if we had read through to the end, Moses comes down from the, from the mountain of the Lord. And when he sees what's going on there, he, even though he's pled for God to preserve Israel, he is so angry and he is so cut to the heart at what is going on at, at this false worship and this blasphemy of the Lord that uh, he says, he stands up and he says, who is on the Lord's side? And there are a number of people who join them. And then he says, go and slay your neighbors, slay your, slay your friends and your neighbors in order to show God's justice upon this nation. So about 3,000 people. Just think about that. The amount that died on September 11th in that, um, in that attack on the Twin Towers. 3,000 people died in that one day for God to make a point about the seriousness of idolatry. And there was even a plague placed on the people after that. So it's a very serious thing. Um, 
All right, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, um, as in the when Balaam um, inter, intervened there. And the whole story of Balaam, I find it a little bit difficult to follow, but in the middle of it, there was this gross sexual sin. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, that is the very passage that Jesus quotes and applies to himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So whoever looks to him and believes will be saved. But in that context, you know how people put Christ to the test? They complained that they'd been brought out into the desert. And one of the things they said, so we hate this miserable food. We hate this stuff. We, we hate eating this food from heaven over and over again. And in this, they put the Lord to the test. They, they didn't trust in him. And of course, there was serious consequences. And of course, God again provided a remedy. It says, nor grumble. Uh, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, if you read through the book of Numbers, you could call it the book of grumbling. You could call it the book of murmuring because the people complain again and again about their miserable lot. Either they're thirsty or they're hungry uh, or they're complaining about their leaders or they're complaining because they don't have as much power as the leaders and who, who, who gives them the right to be above any of us. So some specific examples are the error of, uh, or when they spied out the land, the people grumbled and complained that we're not, if we go in there, we're going to be killed and they didn't trust the Lord. Another one's the sons of Korah who, uh, who murmured against Moses and Aaron and said, why are, they, why are they more important than any of us? And they complained, and, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Um, so they paid a consequence for that as well. So what the apostle is saying to us here is all of these idolatrous and unfaithful, unbelieving attitudes don't get sucked into these attitudes because you are not immune to these things. Um, and don't rest in your external security. Examine your heart. Examine your heart for idolatry. Examine your heart for murmuring. Examine your heart for sexual immorality. And don't think that you can go on living that lifestyle in an unrepentant way and think that you will escape the judgment of God. So there is the example of Israel, very powerful and sobering example. So Paul has been talking about Israel, both its blessings and then its example, how they how they, even in spite of everything they had, they sinned so grievously. But he's doing this for a specific reason, and that is to show us the universality of temptation. It says in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
They apply to Israel at first, but they apply to our, to us. They apply to the church. They apply to the church in Corinth. They apply to the church in Weyburn, because guess what? The end of the age has not yet come. We are still in that same generation, so to speak. And these, these examples are written down for us, for Jews and Gentiles. And if you have any doubt that it is a universal thing, look at this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It applies each of us. We, we really, if we think that our intellectual construction of, of faith and of doctrine, uh, if we can just rest in that and that whatever we do, whatever we do, that is sinful in our bodies is, is somehow overlooked. We've got the wrong attitude altogether about salvation and about grace. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, I think it's really interesting that in this entire book, the two areas of temptation that are most thoroughly addressed are that of those of sexual immorality and of idolatry in the context of food offered to idols. And I think these are the two areas that are a constant throughout every, every period of history. These are the things that... Uh, cause people to fall individually. Idolatry is kind of the, the root of, it is sort of the, uh, the prototype of all sin. When you begin to honor things other than God, when you begin to make yourself more important than God, all of the other, all the other sins follow. And adultery is a spiritual, or is the physical counterpart of idolatry. Uh, it is you know, um, going against God who is meant to be uh, our sufficiency, going against our wife or husband who is meant to be our partner for life, and it is a, is a picture of what actually happens in idolatry. So these things are common to man. You can go to any culture anywhere in the world, and you will find people are tempted in this way. So whether we are Jew, whether we are Gentile, in Romans chapter 2, or chapters 2 and 3, Paul says both, he makes, he, he goes in chapter 1 and 2, he explains how the, Israel, uh, how the Gentiles are under the wrath of God, and then he goes on to explain how the Jews are under the wrath of God, and how only through a righteousness outside the law can there be justification? Can there be deliverance from the wrath of God? We are all under sin. We are all, this temptation is common to all of us. So do we yield this te to this temptation? Do we succumb to it? Do we go along with all the people that are clamoring for Aaron to make us a golden calf? because we want to have a better idea, we want to have a, a, a more concrete idea of what God is like. You got false prophets peddling ideas about God that are no better than Aaron's calf. We have a God who just wants to make us 
rich. We have, some people have a God who winks at sin. Those are chiseled calves. Those are not gods at all. So these temptations are common to man and they slip in. They can be found within the camp of God, just as they were found within the Israelite camp. Not everyone there obviously worshipped that golden calf. There were some, when Moses called out who is on the Lord's side, there were some who came and they were willing, they were on the Lord's side to the extent that they were willing to slay their neighbors who were participating in this idolatry. That was, as, as, uh, that was quite the acid test for their sincerity. Now, God has not repeated that. We don't live under a theocracy. Um, but under, under the rule of God at that time, that was a God-sanctioned act for that sin to be um, suppressed in that way. So there is a universality of temptation. Jew, Gentile, Canadian, American, Haitian, Greek, doesn't matter. We're all subject to that temptation. But there's good news. The good news is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. And this is where the idea of the elect is so important. If you are God's child, if you are chosen and called and justified and, and uh, predestined and, and glorified, He is not going to lose you and He will provide for you a way of escape. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there is no exemption from temptation, but there is deliverance from temptation. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a way of escape. Quite often the way of escape is simply obeying Scripture. And there is one surefire way of escape that anyone can figure out when it comes to idolatry, and that is verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If it has a whiff of false worship, flee from it. I wanted to... Uh, Look at that phrase, God is faithful. It's used another time in 1 Corinthians, and that is in chapter 1. I wanted to read verses 7 through 9 from chapter 1. So that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's going to provide those ways of escape and he's going to sustain us guiltless. Now look at this. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is faithful in that he calls us, but he's also faithful in keeping us. And when he provides a way of escape that we may be able to bear it, he is being faithful to us. He is treating us as his dear children, not as illegitimate sons, but as dear children. He is disciplining us and he is providing a way of escape. So God is faithful. 
against a backdrop of universal temptation, God is faithful. I bet I could, if we, if we sat here long enough, each of you could give instances where God has provided a way of escape for you. Maybe a phone call that came just at the right time. Maybe a scripture verse that popped into your head just at the right time. I, I can, uh, I'll, I'll make one confession to you, and I may have shared this with the church before, um, but when I was, I don't know, a, a young teenager still in high school, I used to take a shortcut through the dining hall at the Bible college, and the cooks would always set out leftover desserts so that the guys who came in after doing their chores, they could come in and they could have something to eat. So I was walking through there, and, and I knew those things were there, and I had full, I was hungry, and I wasn't a student at the school, and I, was, I had full intention of going and helping myself to a dessert. So I walked through the bottom of the dining hall, and there used to be all kinds of music practice rooms there. And then I hear this song that someone is playing in there, and it was, uh, there was hardly anyone around, so I was surprised there was even anyone there. But the song was this. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. <laughs> Each victory will help you some other to win. So, I mean, that was, as, that was as direct as it could have been. And I can give you more and more stories. And it's not because, I think it's because sometimes if God doesn't get us to us at the obvious, you know, where you just simply know it's wrong and you're so stubborn you want to do it anyway, sometimes there's even a, there's a direct... Um, intervention like that, just to say, uh, this, this is a big, this is your way of escape. Like the exit sign is right here. Are you going to take it? Now it's not always that clear. Sometimes it's just there. And sometimes, you know, if I get anywhere close to this, I got to run, but it's there. Now let's look at idolatry. Let's look at the danger of idolatry and let's see why it is such a serious thing. Verse, uh, so the fifth point here is the danger of idolatry in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. In other words, reasonable people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul is saying to these Greeks, these Corinthians who love wisdom, put on your thinking caps. I'm going to lay this out and you tell me if it makes sense. The cup of blessing that we bless... We're talking about the Lord's Supper, the communion, the wine that we drink. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It is an identification. It is, it's kind of like them going through the water with Moses, but it is drinking the blood and showing of our common union with Christ and with his body. It's a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When we eat it together, we recognize that we are collectively the body of Christ, that we are identifying with him in his death, that we are professing our faith in his death. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So these sacred acts of eating the bread and drinking the wine, they unite us with the one that those things represent. They unite us with, or they are a picture, I should say, 
of our unity with Christ. We're participating in Christ when we do those things. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the, sac- eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? Okay, so that's, that's in a good way, participating in good things, participating in Christ. So now he's going to say, what happens when people do similar things, but in honor of false gods? What do I imply then? Oh, that, that food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God... I do not want you to be participants with demons. So just as we participate in the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ, when we have communion together, people who are knowingly eating food offered to idols are participating with demons. And that's a really serious thing. That's what goes on in those temples where some of these Corinthian believers seem to have the freedom to go and eat Be careful. Take heed lest you fall. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. I mean, you can do either or, but you can't do both. It's like you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot eat. You cannot participate in the communion of Christ and participate in communion with demons. Now, there's. I don't think this is an issue for us unless you were to go to the to the Hindu uh, or Hindus don't even eat meat. But anyway. If you, were to, if you were to intentionally purchase something that was used in an, a ritual or in a, in a worship of an idol, and you were to you know, light those candles, I don't even know what they do, but you were to do that in your own home, that would be at least an outward participation. What about a ritual? What about a spiritual practice that has become mainstream even among Christians? Yoga. Now, if you talk to anyone who is a Hindu, they will tell you yoga is Hinduism. They cannot separate it in their minds. And each of those poses that you take is a visual mantra to a certain deity in Hinduism. And the breathing exercises and the relaxation are specifically designed to take you into communion with the spirit realm, to basically uh, short-circuit your... Um, immediate active consciousness and allow you to participate in the spirit realm. Now you could very well say, it's just exercise. I can stretch. It's got many physical benefits. And you might well do that in the comfort of your own home. But to go to an ashram or a place where there is an actual uh, person who has been initiated into the not only the physical exercise, but the spiritual meaning behind it, as most yoga practitioners are, and then to participate with other people, some of whom subscribe, subscribe to that and some who don't, you're actually 
placing yourself in a dangerous position. And so I hope that analogy helps a bit. But to simply slap a label on it and call it Christian yoga, as is being done. You know, you, you might as well call it Christian Buddhism. And by the way, there are Christians who think that they can fuse and bring together Buddhism and Christianity without any conflict whatsoever. You cannot participate in the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. That's what that's saying. And you, you can apply this to various situations. The, the beauty of these three chapters is that you can, you can bring in so many scenarios and you can, without Paul getting in and itemizing every little thing, you can see, well, this, this is one of those things. A, it could be a risk to my brother who's got a weak conscience. B, it could be a risk to unbelievers who, uh, who see me doing this and it'd be a hindrance to the gospel. C, it can be a risk to me because I might not be as strong as I think I am and I might get swept up into a false way of thinking, a false teaching. So I do not want you to be participants with demons. You, can't, you cannot participate in the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You think you're so strong that you can actually participate in a place, in a context where demons are being worshipped, and you think you can do that in such a way that does not promote the Lord, pro provoke the Lord to je jealousy? Do you think that you're that strong that you're not going to fall, or that the Lord might even let you fall, as He did the people um, when, when they were seduced by the, the prostitutes under Balaam? He allowed that to happen as a judgment to them. So don't mess with these things. Now, you might be thinking, doesn't this kind of undercut what Paul is saying about us having a right to eat those things and not to be, not to be worried about it? Um, isn't this kind of a, a hardline um, stance against eating food offered to idols? Well, I think it has a very specific context. It is eating those things in the context where they are intended for that worship. Because as we'll look at next time, um, there are exceptions. If you go to an unbeliever's house, for example, and they serve you meat, you don't even ask, was it sacrificed to idols? You just eat it with thanksgiving. You don't worry about it. Because your conscience, you don't have to be worried about offending them because it, the issue has not been raised. So there, there are certainly exceptions to that. On the other hand, if they say it was offered to idols, you're not to eat it at all because they are putting it right out there that this is what it's all about and you don't want to uh, be a partaker in that. Now, just to, to cap it off here, I'll go to 1 Corinthians 6 and Paul has already raised this topic that we've discussed here in these last few verses, but it says, do, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Remember, this is all about we're one body. When we eat the body, eat the bread of bread representing Christ, we drink the 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 cup. It's an expression of our unity with Him. One bread, one body. It's expressed in chapter six as a physical union with a, a prostitute. That's that's a that's a false unity that we need to run from. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body? He who is joined to demons becomes one with them, right? He who is participating in those things. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. All right, now, there's a lot of good information there. How does, this all, how does this all relate to the gospel? Well, when the Lord saves us, when the Lord redeems us, He does, does give us a new nature. He does give us new desires. We do not, in our new nature, desire evil as the Israelites did. But we still have this old nature. We've got to deal with that day by day by day. Otherwise, these epistles never would have had to be written if we weren't fighting the battle with evil, with desires, with temptations, with false teaching. And God is faithful. And God has provided the way of escape. God has provided the one who delivers us, as the Apostle Paul, when he cries out in, first, uh, in uh, Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, my Lord. And he does deliver us. He has delivered us. His blood has, has uh, conquered has forgiven the sin of all who trust in them. His one-time sacrifice has taken care of that. And so the exhortation to us today, as it was even in the back in the days of Israel, is to believe, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not doubt. Trust in Him. When He says you can take the land, you can. When He says... When he says, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, and God will with this temptation provide a way of escape. It says the way of escape, definite article. You will be able to bear it. He means it. So we walk by faith, not by sight. So we're about to celebrate in, in a very tangible way the gospel of Jesus Christ. We celebrate not only the fact that his blood cleanses us from all sins, but the fact that his his body is for us, real meat. In other words, his death for us. Uh, it, it sustains us, it nourishes us. And these, uh, these things that we do in remembrance of Jesus, um, they remind us of the victory that we have in him. So I'm going to invite the elders to come and we will do our communion.